and do applause tonight. <laughs> no, yeah, Brian, give it up for Pastor Brian. Actually, we d- hey, we do want to give it up for Pastor Brian. You know why? Friday, December 1st, was the eight-year anniversary of when Brian and Angie arrived in Paradise, California. So, happy anniversary, Brian. Bro, we love you and your family, man. Thank you so much for serving this church for so long. Eight years, dude. You've had to put up with me for eight years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I know that was sincere right there. So, All right, y'all, if you could start um, turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a rundown of why we're turning to Genesis chapter 3. You know, this is, as you've heard, the first Sunday of Advent. That's why we have the wreath and the candle here going. Um, and so as we are prone to do, we wanted to take a little pause from our usual sermon series that we've been in, which is the one on the life and times of Elijah the prophet, and do something a little bit more Christmassy. You're probably wondering, how is Genesis 3 Christmassy? Um, well, truthfully, this chapter in the Bible, the one that we usually point to as the most catastrophic of all, when Adam and Eve fell, when brokenness entered the world, when sin entered the world, this, believe it or not, is the beginning of the Christmas story. Whenever we do Christmas Eve service, you know, this year, as Brian was saying, it falls on Sunday, so we'll be here. But then, uh, you know, also the Schaefers who have constantly over the years invited us to participate in the event that they have at their house, they're going to be doing that later this year as well. But whenever we've been at the Schaefer Ranch, when it falls on like a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we we help out sometimes with the scripture readings and the songs that we sing. And and our purpose in doing that is to sort of trace the promise of the Messiah from the Old Testament to the New and see the Christmas story as it's woven throughout the entire Bible. And our first text that we read is Genesis 3.15. We start there. And the reason why is twofold. One, we start in Genesis 3 because that tells us what the reason that we need a Savior in the first place. It gives us the reason for Christmas. We celebrate and get excited about deliverance that Jesus brings and the fact that the Savior has entered the world. But sometimes we forget to say, why is it that we need a Savior again? Genesis 3 makes that very clear. And we see the ramifications of sin and the fall. In fact, this is where my title comes from for this sermon series. This is what we're going to stick with for the next few weeks. This is part one of the reason for the reason for the season, which is really fun to say. Try it on your way home. Now, you're probably thinking this is a typo that I've repeated the reason multiple times. But no, this is on purpose. The reason for the season is what? Jesus. Yes. You've all seen the bumper stickers around town. Jesus is the reason for the season. But what I'm interested in in Genesis 3 is what's the reason for the reason for the season? What's the reason that we need Jesus to come into the world to deliver us? Well, we're going to talk about it in these verses. The reason for the reason for the season. Ooh, that's going to be fun. Y'all, hey, more often than not, I'm not super excited about the sermon titles that I come up with. But this one I am. (laughs) So I might say it a lot. Okay, the second reason, though, that we start in Genesis 3, not only is it for the reason, for the reason, for the season, but 
Genesis 3.15, I said a second ago, it's the text that we always read to start our time at Christmas Eve. Because that verse, believe it or not, is the first promise of Christmas found in the Bible. It's on the second page, at least in my Bible, that God says a Messiah is on the way, a deliverer is coming, hold on. Now, it's, it's a little vague. It's easy to sort of pass by it and not realize what that text is getting at. But once you see it, it's impossible not to just marvel at the fact that God gives us the hope of Christmas even in the, the very beginning of the story. And that God gives us the hope of Christmas at our darkest moment. Y'all, what we're going to read about in Genesis 3, I know it's familiar to many of you. I know you've heard it from the time you were in Sunday school and little, or at least some of you guys. But you have to realize what we're going to read about is catastrophic. It is the darkest hour not only humanity has ever known, but also the universe. When the good creation God had made all of a sudden is subjected to pain and brokenness and hurt. But it is at that darkest moment that God the Father says, hold on, Christmas is on the way. We'll be getting to that in a few Sundays because the plan is to sort of break this up into three parts. We're going to start with the opening verses of Genesis 3 today and talk a little bit about the temptation that Adam and Eve experience. Next week, we're going to talk about after they had eaten of the fruit of the tree that was forbidden to them, what the ramifications were of that, what the fallout of the fall was. And then finally, week three is when we're going to get to that Genesis 3.15, that first promise of Christmas, that first promise of the gospel, and really unpack what God's saying in that. That's the plan. Now, I know Advent has four Sundays, and I just gave you three right there. But remember, the fourth Sunday of Advent is Christmas Eve. So what we want to do that Sunday is kind of a, a Christmas Eve service, as you guys know it. A lessons and carols, scripture reading, paired together with Christmas carols that we'll sing. And then... I think we're also going to bust out the candles with the little, you know, yeah. And there was much rejoicing in the land. The candles with the, with the little paper wax catchers. Oh, man, it's going to be fun. We're going to turn out all the lights. Going to try not to set each other on fire. I was telling Brian and Monica that one of my family uh, stories that my parents always tell is when my sister was little and they let her hold a candle and she almost uh, caught the guy's coat in front of her on fire, started smoking a little bit. So, so let, uh, the point is, be pr prayerful before Christmas Eve. The Lord protects us from ourselves. So that's the plan going forward. But, but like I said, our, our, our goal today is to start with these opening verses. And let's look at the temptation that befalls Eve and then her husband, Adam. So I'm going to ask now if you are able to stand, if you would join me for standing for God's word. We're looking at Genesis 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 tonight. This is what the Bible says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat of the tree of the the fruit of the trees in the garden, but but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts in these next few moments would be pleasing in your sight. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can be seated. So we're going to limit our observations tonight to two main things. I know there's a lot here in this text. There's a lot that I want to look into and delve into, but really we're going to stop just with these two main observations. The temptation that was delivered by the serpent to Adam and Eve, but then also the motivation. What was the thing that drove them to eat of the forbidden fruit? The temptation the motivation. Now, the reason we're kind of limiting it to that is, remember, the purpose of this is not to sort of delve into every single detail in the text, but we're kind of, this is an Advent series. We, we want to look at this to get us ready for the arrival of Jesus on Christmas and to realize the world that Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah stepped into. So that's why we're going to kind of keep ourselves to just these two big sort of takeaways from this text. Now, starting with the temptation, we're going to look back at the, the very first verses that I read here. And so just to remind you, we started with this talk about the serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, I'll stop here for a second and just give a little bit of lip service to this. My biggest question of this text ever since I was a little boy has always been, why didn't Eve just be like, snakes don't talk? <laughs> like, it seems like she could have shut this down really quickly when she realized something was going on here that was very out of the ordinary. Um, I mean, I'm definitely afraid of snakes to begin with. So a talking snake, I just feel like, whew, either I'd have had a heart attack or just run the other direction. But uh, I I'm saying this, giving lip service to it, because we're not going to explore those questions too much about the identity of the serpent or even, like, why he's talking. Um, what I really want to hone in on is the content of the words he said. So right after it says that the serpent spoke to the woman, here's the quotation. Did God actually say? Did God actually say the first temptation the thing that started this train wreck is a questioning of if we can really know what God said if we can truly understand it if his word truly is reliable that's the beginning of temptation now, keep in mind, when the serpent says, did God really say, this isn't for clarification. This isn't because he's, uh, you know, he just loves learning and wants to learn something new. 
the purpose is to undermine. It's to sow doubt. It's to begin to, to make Eve and then Adam think, did God really say that? How, how can I know? How can I be sure? Now, and, and get this. The undermining isn't just at that level of knowledge of can I really be sure that God said this. It's also at the level of character. Because what the serpent's doing, we're going to see this in the next line, is not only undermining if we can know what God said. He's undermining if God truly is good and trustworthy. So here's the next thing he says. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You guys tell me. Is that what God said? No. No, it's not. It is a twisted distortion of what God had actually said. In fact, let's go back. Uh, I think I put it up on the screen. Yeah, so this is just uh, one chapter before where we get to. This is what God had actually told Adam. And then we imagine Adam passed this on to Eve. It says, the Lord God... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I typed this in real quick when I first got here, so that's why there's a typo here. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, it starts, what God actually said, with his gracious provision. He is given every tree in the garden minus one. To Adam and Eve to take care of their needs, to nourish them, for them to enjoy. The, the beginning of what God said is just, it, it's about his abundance and sharing that abundance with the people that he's made. And then even the end of it, when we finally do get to the prohibition, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, we see that it's actually protection that motivates God saying, don't eat of it. For in that day, you shall surely die. So what God had actually said was just dripping with grace. Either the grace that I've given you abundant provision or the grace of I've protected you from death. That is the content of what God actually said. But in the serpent's mouth, it's twisted and distorted and, and bent all out of shape. In the serpent's mouth, it becomes, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, in the ESV, the translation we're reading, this kind of is a little bit um, unclear. Because it almost sounds like the serpent's saying, you can't eat of, of, of any of the trees. Something that obviously wrong is probably not what was meant here. It was probably more along the lines of like, wouldn't a good God have given you free reign of all of the trees in the garden? Like, are you telling me that, that he didn't just let you choose whichever tree you wanted, but he said that there's some that are off limits, even though there's just one that's off limits? You can't eat of any tree you want to? That's the idea. And that's where the, the, uh, the, the serpent isn't just flat out lying. Rather, what he's taking what God has said and been very selective in the details. He's twisted it. He's put the emphasis on the don't. And what he's done is he's created this picture of God who looks arbitrary and cold and withholding. 
and he's planted that image in the woman's mind. Sometimes temptation, it, it comes at us in, in not being sure what God has commanded and what is, it means to be obedient to him. But what we're seeing here, sometimes it comes when we begin to selectively phrase what God has said and we create this picture of him that's very much out of keeping with the gracious God that we see in the Bible. Did God really say? That's the first temptation. Now, to Eve's credit, she pushes back initially. She is able to kind of articulate what God had said uh, in a way way more accurate than the serpent had. I'll remind you. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She's able to say, no, we can eat of all the trees. It's this one that's dangerous that we stay away from. Now, notice she actually is more severe than God himself was. God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. So some commentators have wondered if the, if the serpent has already gotten to her a little bit. She's beginning to think of God as even more strict than he actually was. Maybe it just shows the, the amount of respect she had for the command. We're not exactly sure. But I will, uh, forgive me, I know this is a fast forward. But we have to get to the part where we know that ultimately, even if she did push back initially, she ultimately gave in to that temptation takes of the fruit, she gives it to Adam, they both eat, and all of humanity falls afterwards. Now, the question I have for us is, what was the motivation? What was that driving factor that made her, that made him take that bite? We've already talked about the temptation that got him to the edge, but what was the thing that pushed them over? This is when we're going to look at Genesis 3. 5 through 6. I'm going to start with verse 6. It says this, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So her motivation, she saw that the tree was good for food. She saw that whatever the fruit was, it was a delight to the eyes and she saw that it was good to make one wise. It's that last motivation that we're going to lean into because the other two aren't new presumably she had seen the tree before she knows it's a delight to the eyes she knows that it gives fruit that you can eat for nourishment it's the wisdom that's new she understands it now as being able to give her something that has been defined by the serpent and the verse that comes right before now we're going to read verse five God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the wisdom that Eve was after. She believed the serpent when he said that when you do this, you will become like God. I was uh, reminded this week in my study of this old video that I saw. I don't know if they're still doing this, but it used to be that a lot of churches would make videos of their, the kids and their kids' ministry, and they would ask them, like, Bible questions and hear their funny answers. Um, I actually have my own experience of that. There's this old home video 
of me when I was like four or five and my mom asked me to tell the nativity story at Christmas and it was like a 30 minute like there were monkeys involved and lots of sword fighting this character named Smokey that we don't even really know what that was meant I, I can't tell people what that is but it's just this very long elaborate story that's pretty funny whenever we watched it but the one that I was remembering from the uh the kids was they they asked them once what's the coolest thing about God and it was sort of funny to hear the qualities of God that they came up with so one of them like God can fly he lives in the sky that was the coolest thing about God to them what one said that God's even stronger than my dad they're like whoa God knows everything and then there was even uh one little boy that was like God doesn't have to share with his little sister <laughs> and you're like all right know the context to that answer right there um but it, all these kids they they were focusing on what I for lack of a better term would say like the superhero qualities of God his power and his knowledge and his might and it, as funny as that can seem as adults when we look back on it, I think that for many of us, when we hear about somebody wanting to be like God, that's immediately where our mind goes. They want some superhero power. They want to, to be the strongest in the universe or to know all things or to be uh, uh, eternal with no beginning or no end. You know, our movies where there's a villain that wants God-like power, that's what he's after. And so we could read this text and say, you will be like God, and say that Adam and Eve's desire was to be like God and think that that's what they're after, but it's not. Here's what they're after. Control. Autonomy. The freedom to dictate the details of their life without having to answer to anybody else. That's the appeal of being like God. And so Eve hears that eating of this fruit will enable her to be her own God. No one above her. Nothing to answer to other than her own desire. And that's what pushes her over the edge. Life in the garden was good before. There wasn't anything that you would need uh, God-like power or knowledge to solve. Creation was in perfect harmony. God was in perfect relationship with Adam and Eve. He would fellowship with them in the cool of the day, in the garden. All was so good. But the thing that was irresistible to Eve and then to Adam is we can be our own God. And so they take of the apple. Or <laughs> I said apple. It, we don't know what kind of fruit it was. Isn't it funny in all the art, it's always an apple? But uh, actually, could have been a banana. <laughs> banana. <laughs> all right, come back to me, all right? So, all right, we're talking about Adam and Eve. We're talking about the details of their story. But I'm sure there might be a few of you guys in here that are saying, so what? What do I care about people that lived thousands of years ago that have no bearing on my life? Well, they do have great bearing on your life. Adam and Eve aren't just these historical ancient figures 
that we're studying like in a history textbook. They're our first parents. This, what we just read about, is their inheritance that they have given us as their descendants. It wasn't too long ago that we were in the book of Romans. There's a whole chapter in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, that talks about Adam in particular as being, because he was the first human, he is our representative. And when he fell, all his descendants after him were taken down that dark, dark hole and path too. This is our inheritance. We've not only inherited uh, the guilt of Adam and Eve, they're standing before God as those who disobeyed and are guilty, but we've also inherited their corruption. That is the draw towards sin, that pull towards sin, that thing that makes it seem so irresistible to us. That's the inheritance they've given us. So when we read about this first temptation, did God really say? We're reading about our temptation. When we read about that first motivation to be like God, we're reading about our motivation. This is our story. And this is why I, I leaned in so much today on thinking about that first temptation and that first motivation. Because that means that when Jesus Christ came into the world on Christmas all those years ago, this is the world he was entering into. With a human race that ever after Adam and Eve had been stuck in this vicious cycle of constantly asking, did God really say? And constantly desiring things that are for, uh, that, that lead to their death because they want to be like God. That is what the Christ child entered into the world to address. Now before we get more to that, I want to try to make this a bit more personal to us. And I'm going to ask you to do some introspection. Either in this moment right now or maybe sometime during this week. But I want you to look into your life, into your heart, into your spirit and your soul. And I want you to consider how it might be that this question, did God really say, how it might be that that is the catalyst to so many of the temptations and sin struggles that you have. Questioning. What God has actually said in his word. Now, we can immediately go to outside influences and think about the others from outside of us that are questioning God's word. You can think about like, you know, all those academics and critical scholars. They're constantly trying to undermine the, the validity of the Bible and what God's word says. Yeah, that's true. Or you could say, like, okay, society and culture is constantly looking at the things that Christians believe and saying, that's outdated and oppressive and archaic. Did God really say that? No. And it's true. Those things are part of the legacy of this original temptation that still echoes in the world today. However, we don't have to look at outside influences. Is everything is that me? Oh, was that my beard? Oh, man. I thought there was like a crash in the back of the building. Like, <laughs> do we need to call an ambulance? <laughs> no. We're all good. Okay. Disaster averted. Well, here is where I was coming from, though, guys, is that we think that we need to think of outside influences that are the ones that saying, did God really say? But the truth is, it comes from our own flesh. 
It comes from our own hearts sometimes. We're the ones that often are asking, oh, do you want me to switch it up, David? Okay. Hey, quick pause. Uh, Talk amongst yourselves about your favorite Christmas song. that on? Yeah, I can hear it. Okay, enough of that. No more Christmas songs. Although, I think my new favorite Christmas song is that one that Kevin and Maddie sang together tonight. In our, that was awesome. Thank you so much, musicians, for sharing your talents with us. Man, that was beautiful. So, our own hearts, ever since the fall, are the ones that sometimes generate this question of, did God really say Can I really trust him? Do I really know what his word says? Is it reliable? Do I understand it? We create that temptation all on our own. Let me give you an example, although I'm going to have to keep it a little vague. A couple of weeks ago, I, (laughs) for lack of a better term, I, I threw a pity party for myself for a couple of days. Forgive me, if, if like two weeks ago, if you talked to me on a Wednesday or a Tuesday and I seemed like I was being rude and disengaged. I was in a weird place, and I think it was because uh, some things had happened where I just was reflecting on the circumstances of life, and in particular, the things that I don't have, the things that I've asked the Lord for for many, many years and hasn't happened, and just being dissatisfied with a lot. And then what really got me all in my feelings was then comparing that to the fact that God still has standards for me. He still has limits on my thoughts and my behavior. He still has uh, the standard of what it means to follow Christ, even in the circumstance that I'm in, which felt to me in those days very, very unfair. And it's interesting because I look back on it now and I'm realizing that the battleground of that pity party was this question, did God really say? Because here's, in my mind, I'm doing what the serpent did. Did God really say that I can't do this? Did God really say that I have to spend my whole life like that? Did God really say that he's limiting and keeping me from these things? Did, Did God really say that following Jesus is picking up your cross and following after him daily? And what I was doing is creating this whole list of all the things that God says, I can't, I can't, I can't, don't, 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 never, never, never. And I created this caricature of him in my head that made him look just like a God who was toying with me. Just messing with me. And that picture in my head is far different from the God of the Bible. It's far different from the God who's shown me over and over in my life that the things that he tells me not to go down this path or not to go down that path is not to toy with me, but it's for my protection, for my good, because his grace is better than my short-sighted desires. How is it that you have seen that question, did God really say, come up in your heart? And spark your temptation. 
I'll ask you to do the same thing for the motivation too, to look deep in your heart, your life, your soul, and wonder what is it that's pushing me over the edge when I have those times in my life to choose whether I follow Christ or whether I follow my own sinful desires, where I choose right or choose wrong, what's the thing that pushes you over? And you might say a lot of things. Well, it's because I really wanted this, because I was really tired or frustrated. But I wonder if we, if we trace the thread back far enough, if we would find that deep down, the thing that's motivating us, that's driving us, that's pushing us when we choose sin, is that desire to be like God. That desire to be our own boss. That desire to be able to dictate the details of our lives and not have to uh, answer to anyone but me. Now here's the sad thing. Eve chose to take the fruit. She gave it to her husband Adam. He chose to take the fruit, both under the impression that in doing so they would be like God. And what they got instead was chaos and destruction and brokenness. Similarly, we go after sin. Maybe we're not even conscious of it, but we think that in taking it, we will be our own boss. We will be our own God. And all it yields us is destruction and ugliness and sin. I'll go a step further. All it yields us is bondage. We think it will make us free. It just makes us more of a slave. This is the legacy of the first temptation and the first motivation to sin. This vicious cycle of continuing to ask, undermine ask, did God really say? And this vicious cycle of continuing to go after things that we think will make us like God, will make us free, and actually just deliver us from bondage. It's, this is all reminding me of uh, when we were in the book of Romans. We get to the end of Romans 7. After all this just ugliness and pain of the fall is exposed, and the Apostle Paul says, Oh, wretched man am I, who will save me from this body of sin and death? And his answer in that moment is Jesus Christ and his grace. So in the same way, I ask you this. Oh, wretched man am I. Who will save me from this vicious cycle of doubt? And did God really say? Who will save me from this vicious cycle of wanting to be my own God and going after my sinful desires because I think it will free me? Well, the answer is the same. Jesus Christ. The Christ child. This is the world he enters into on Christmas. This is what he addresses. He meets us right at this place of people that are so blind, they're constantly questioning what God said. And the people who are so foolish that they're constantly trying to make themselves God. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about how Jesus, when he comes into the world, not only does he forgive us of the ways that we constantly do this, he also begins to free us from being trapped in these cycles. That's his grace that's born on Christmas. And just as we talk about him being the light of the world, that light begins to start with him and flow into all these dark places and even begins to illuminate these things. Did God really say, and you will be like God? His light begins to free us and not be captive to that anymore but to be able to, in him, see 
the image of God to know what is true. And also uh, the beauty of not wanting to be our own masters, but to hear the voice of Christ say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I know this is a bleak start to a Christmas series, but we're doing it on purpose. Because when we paint this dark picture, and it truly is dark, then we get to see the radiance of the Christ child who comes into the world. Christmas ain't so good if you don't realize how bad it was before. But when you see that darkness, you appreciate his light all the more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you we are able in this Advent season to know that there is a light coming, that Jesus, the light of the world, has already arrived, and that his light shining forth in our lives have changed everything. God, we ask it and pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. We get to do a lot of things tonight, including...